0: All right, well, good morning. We are finally to the heart of the book of Esther. And um, it's always exciting when we get to that point and it feels like forever to get to this point, but um, we're finally there. So um, every year, uh, God gives me a word for the year. And I've shared about this concept before. I've shared about several of my words before. Some years, I have had a focused study on that particular word, either through a book about the word or um, a, a word study through scripture. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I understand completely why God is giving me the word that he has given me. And sometimes I don't. But one year, my word was wait. And what a year that was. There, I know, <laughs> but there were many opportunities for waiting. Um, we, we live actually right next to a Amish farm and we pass Amish farms going to wherever it is that we plan to go from our house. And so I would be reminded of that word every time that I was behind an Amish buggy because I was trying to get somewhere on time, but the Amish buggy was not interested in that same thing. Um, But in May of that year came the cancer diagnosis for my mom. And I learned how to appreciate the time in the waiting room, surrounded by people that we loved as the surgeon operated on her. Um, We had to wait for chemo and blood work and radiation, And then in November of that same year, we went into a waiting mode again as hospice was called in for my aunt. We had times of waiting on answers about Ray's job, uh, about things for the kids. It was a year of waiting for God to move and to speak and to act. And there were times throughout that year that I knew God was at work and I could clearly see it. And there were times in that year when I just couldn't tell and all we could do was wait. And yet each and every time, God worked things out beautifully when we waited on him to work out his plan. And so this is where we are with the book of Esther. We have spent the first three chapters, and for us that took several months, to get to this point. And so if you're reading Esther for the first time, you might become impatient with God and conclude that nothing's happening. This is the most boring book ever. But no chapter holds greater significance to Esther than the one we're unfolding now. <coughs> Haman would not have made his intentions known until after the king agreed and made, it, made his edict beyond revocation. And so here we are, 15 million Jews scattered throughout the Persian Empire, and because of Haman's enmity and the king's stupidity, all of them were now appointed to die unless they pulled up stakes and left the kingdom which was not an easy thing to do um, because persia was the largest empire of the world at the time but then we see that secluded in the royal harem queen esther knew nothing about the danger that she and her people faced and so haman the agagite before we get into our chapter four he Went to the king, right, through much exaggeration, even some bold-faced lying, he convinced the king to annihilate the entire Jewish population. And the king gave Haman his signet ring to issue a, an irrevocable edict to destroy and kill all of the Jews in the empire on a particular day at the end of the year. I think creatively for a minute here. What do you think a good front-page newspaper headline would be for that particular day? the day that the edict was, this was is announcing the edict. End of the Jews Jews coming soon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anybody else? There's this line in the movie Newsies. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend the movie. It's it's one of my favorites. But they talk about it's it's about the newsboys who are, are selling newspapers, right? And and he talks about the words, the key words that you need in a headline. And so, in my mind, it was Jews to be annihilated. Was because that was one of the words that um, that he talks about. So, so, think about that. That's what the people are are the, the coming soon. The, the end of the Jews coming soon. That's what's that's what's on people's minds as we start reading um, Esther chapter four verses one through three. You can stay sitting. And so we thought about the front page story, and now that we've read these three verses, what might be, you know, you always have like the big massive headline, and then you have all those little stories with it, right? And so what's the, what's the headline for the accompanying story about these, these verses about the, the response of the Jews?
1: Sackcloth and ashes back in fashion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a
0: good one. That's a good one anything else anybody else morning begins. morning begins yeah the jews are grieving they they heard about this and it it wouldn't have been like today they can just announce it and everybody knows in the whole empire at once right they didn't have cell phones and the internet but but it would have trickled down and as it trickled out to those farther reaches, the reaction was the same everywhere. Um, it would have been the talk of the town for everyone, for Jews and the Persians. Everybody would know about it and everybody would be making their opinions known. And so let's look at Mordecai specifically. And so, what is Mordecai doing? How is he expressing his grief? He tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. in the middle of the city, wailing. Sack, sackcloth, and sackcloth and ashes. Yeah, he's he's doing all these things. And up to this point, we have seen Mordecai as a very proud and capable man. Right? And suddenly we see him wailing loudly on the streets of Susa and tearing his clothing. Um, when it says in the esv it uses the phrase cried out with a loud and bitter cry this shows this just an intense grief an extreme grief and in in society at this time jews and persians this was uh, it it was common to show one's grief you didn't go and hide hide away Um, torn clothes was an indicator and the sackcloth was an indicator. It was a common practice throughout the Old Testament. So, after Jacob hears about Joseph's supposed death by his from his brothers, we see Genesis. We see how he responds in Genesis 37, verse 34. So that was Jacob, and then David also did the same thing. I'm I'm going to spoil the um, our sermon series for you. Sorry, Saul dies. <laughs> but um, after the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he responds in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And so David responds in that way, but then we see Daniel, who was a little bit before the book of Esther, if you remember, but still uh, in that in that time frame in, and in that uh, uh, society at the time, the the Jews are under the control of the Persians, and Daniel realizes the promise that God made through the prophet Jeremiah and how long it is that they were going to actually be under somebody else's complete control. And so he responds in Daniel chapter nine. I didn't write down which verses, but I did write them down on the paper. So three to six. (laughs) So, so, Daniel is grieving not the death of somebody, not his own death. He's grieving the sin of his people. Excuse me. What book is that? That's from Daniel chapter 9, and you said 3 to 6. Uh, Herodotus, he's the, the Greek historian that we've referred to several times. He, he he talks about the Persians coming back from losing a battle in Greece and just tearing their clothes because of their grief. This was was a common practice of the time, and and sackcloth sackcloth was something that the Jews in particular used in order to express a, a deep distress or grief or even guilt, like in Daniel's case. It was a way that Mordecai, and other Jews were clearly making a statement of what their grief, what, what their emotions were, were feeling. Um, so he, was, he ripped his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes. It was a, 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 public, uh, a kind of a public undressing and then redressing in the clothing of death to, to demonstrate a change in his status and his state. This was Mordecai truly humbling himself. Yes. Do you have any idea why the ashes? Uh, it was just part of what, yeah. It had no special meaning. I'm sure it probably did. I just don't know what, what I mean, it, 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 yeah. Yeah, but, so Mordecai humbled himself, and then he was deliberately lowering his status in the eyes of the community. He could not go into, he, he couldn't enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and so he was, he was truly humbling himself. Um, I, I, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but Lamentations chapter 3, verses 40 through 66, this was not specific to Mordecai. So don't take it to there. But, but this was the type of lament that the Jews of the time would have been making. They, they would have known that God was punishing their disobedience to some level, to, to their, of their disobedience to him, to God, on some level. Uh, and they were being drawn back to the Lord. Landon Dowden says, through Lamentations, we, which not just the book of Lamentations, Lamentations like lamenting in general. Um, so th- through Lamentations, we are encouraged to deal with our suffering by, by directing our despair not away from God, but toward him. And that one in Daniel was was Daniel lamenting the, the disobedience it, it would have been a similar thing to what some of these um, some of these Jews would have been thinking about too, and so Haman succeeded. Right, H- Haman's reasoning for going to the king was, or, or the, what he told the king was, this guy wouldn't. He he got mad because he wouldn't bow down to him. Right, they, he was disobeying because he didn't, Mordecai didn't bow down. And so Haman succeeded in driving Mordecai to his knees, but it was not for Haman. It was instead returning to the Lord. And this is why God allowed it. And so when we think about it, why do you think that Mordecai was grieving? Why do you think it was so important to, to include this in, in the book? Right. Yeah, it could have been Dawn. I think it also serves as an example for us because he was going to the Lord. He was in, and we all are going to have things that grieve us. Right. So we must go to the Lord to resolve. Him. Yeah. Is this not an inference to God, even though that's not exactly. is this, is the case? Exactly. inference God. Right. Yeah. Even though God's not mentioned, this is this is strongly saying here. Here's him going to God. Yeah.
1: But I, do, I wonder if it's a renewal of his identity as a Jewish person. Because I mean, they were living they're living in exile. Their Jewish identity. I mean, Esther's Jewish identity was unknown. So it's not like they were living set apart. And I wonder mm-hmm. if. Hey, I need to take, I need to take my chosen status more seriously. So I'm going to, I'm going to grieve over that too. But I have not.
0: Yeah. And it's a combination of all of these things. You know, Mordecai, I, I will say, I, um, I read one commentary that really threw me, uh, because it said that Mordecai was grieving the fact that he didn't bow down to Haman. And I really didn't like that because I don't think he did, and and we'll see that in just a minute. So this was not an indication of Mordecai being sorry for his particular actions in refusing to bow down, but he would have known that that would have had a, a, I mean, he. He shared with those men at the gate that he was Jewish, and so he would have known that that it could have been that. Um, but it wasn't. It, this grieving wasn't guilt to him, for him, for chapter three. And in fact, if we look ahead at Esther five nine, um, we will see that shown. So I don't know who I gave it to. And so when we look at that verse, just one chapter in the future, who's involved there? Haman, Haman and Mordecai. And what does Mordecai do, or more accurately, not do? He doesn't bow. He doesn't, he, he's still doing the same thing that made Haman so angry in chapter 3. It didn't change anything This edict didn't change anything for Haman except revenge because he was still filled with rage against Mordecai. So Mordecai was not grieving his role in this situation. He was not feeling guilty. He was grieving over their fate. And the Persians would have understood that. Um, the, The Jews overall, they were mourning. They're unavoidable and certain death. So imagine knowing the date of your death and knowing that it would be something that should be avoidable but would, would not be, would, would still happen, right? Just, just put that in your mind for a minute. That's where the Jews are. And so there's, their, their brains would have been almost paralyzed. They wouldn't have known what to do at this point because they had no choice. They had nothing no hope um and so they were turning back to the lord they were grieving the edict specifically but they were grie- grieving their disobedience to god as well they were grieving uh, just the the whole um you know if you imagine your whole nation is going to die you, you you think that's the end for God too, and so there was a there was an idea, a, a feeling of that as well, and so, um, so it was just this ever increasing cloud of grief that overshadowed the land, because it's slowly spreading as the messengers are making their ways to the far reaches of of the empire. And so, where was Mordecai when all this happens? In back in. Um, our first three verses of, of chapter 4. Yeah, he's at the king's gate. And, and if we remember, we've talked about it a number of times before, the king's gate was the commercial and legal hub of the city. It was kind of a combination marketplace and courtroom. And here was Mordecai making a very public statement. Now, Haman's goal was to get a reaction from Mordecai, And he certainly got one it just wasn't the reaction he expected and so the he's at the king's gate but he knows that it's against persian law for him to enter the court while he's mourning Um, the king was was protected from negative things they i mean the whole goal has been to keep him happy we've we've seen that through the first three chapters right He was not to see sadness and disappointment and mordecai still followed this he didn't enter the gate he just stood at the gate right he still obeyed the law of the land Uh, but he went to the gate he likely would have been gathering with other jews Uh, it, it was where he worked we established that in previous weeks so he was expected to be there but he, he may have been taking a stand. Perhaps he was trying to get Esther's attention, um, hoping to get a message to the queen. And so then Esther, um, the, in verse 4, is when Esther hears about Mordecai. So uh, Esther 4.4. 4. And so just because Esther was in the palace, it did not mean that she knew what all was happening in the empire. State affairs are not commonly discussed between a monarch and his wife at this time, right? She was there for his pleasure, not for business. Um, And so just like the king, she was protected from what happens outside the palace walls. But then she heard something was wrong with Mordecai. And so she, um, the her, her interest in Mordecai. Remember, he would come and check on her, send messages to her. So this, this was not new. Uh, her maids and her eunuchs would have known uh, that that she had some sort of relationship with Mordecai. And so this wouldn't have been um, wouldn't have been a surprise. And so they, they come and tell her. You know, here's what's happening with Mordecai. And so how does she respond initially? What's her her response here in verse 4? She, she was distressed. And what did she do? She sent him clothes. Like, I don't know what this morning is all about, but pull yourself together, man, right? That's <laughs> kind of what she's, she's saying. And... She just probably thought it was some light matter, which he took too much to heart, and so she sent him a change of clothes, requested that he took off his sackcloth, Um, because all she was told at this point was that he was acting weird, right? That's not normal, Um, and she wasn't given the reason, so she just did the logical thing. I, I don't want you to draw attention to yourself, that's what you've been telling me not to do, and so so let's, let's just fix this, right? Part of it was she was probably trying to save face for herself. Um, people knew of their relationship uh, in, in some way, shape, or form, that they had some relationship, and appearance was important, um, and, and had been taught to her by Mordecai, because had been told, Mordecai don't share who you are and so appearance was important but she also saw a problem and wanted to fix it right I I am confident we've all been there where we've looked for the quick fix for things so what is the error in this way of thinking
1: They fix the outward appearance to fix the problem. Yeah, you
0: know? a new dress doesn't make you less sad. Mm-hmm. Right. Hate to break it to you. <laughs> right?
1: It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, a teenage daughter embarrassed by what her parents are wearing and so she's like, here, put this on instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Or it's the, do you have to wear that? <laughs> right yeah and 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 so she was she was thinking about just fixing the the outside right she was looking at at protecting him if a a hashverosh happened to go to the gate she was trying to protect him because he was publicly wailing and mourning and grieving And so she was hoping that by giving him at least the clothes, she would protect him, at least temporarily, from the wrath of the king. Um, But she didn't know what was happening either. And so her, her concern was real, but she missed the mark when it came to truly helping. Esther was trying to provide answers when she should have been asking questions. Then we see in uh, our next passage how Esther then responds. So Esther chapter 4 verses 5 through 8.
2: Of the written
0: decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king and favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And so what was Esther's response? He he um, Mordecai refuses the clothes, her her eunuchs. Maids and eunuchs come back to her and say he won't change his clothes, and so then what does she do?
2: She decided to find out what was going on, so she picked one of her trusted eunuchs who would do what she asked and who wouldn't change anything to go speak to Mordecai.
0: Yeah, so she finally decided I need to get to the root of this problem, I need to figure out what is wrong. Because this is bigger than just some small thing that he's blown out of proportion, and so she called for her trusted eunuch, and and it was the the use of of Hafak and the um the way that his name is repeated here, that it's talked, you know this th- this uh, the tone of this is is really to. Have us feel the distance between Esther and Mordecai. In reality, it was a couple of walls in a hallway. That was how far apart they were. But but in terms of, of distance, they were on completely different planets. And so so that's so when we see this, we're we're feeling how far apart they are. Because, not just because she doesn't know what's going on, but because she's having to use someone else to get that information. So often in the work of the Lord, he uses obscure people to accomplish important tasks. And so when Mordecai told Hathak that to tell the queen to ask for mercy, it says for her people, he divulged officially to this eunuch, the fact that Esther was Jewish. And so he would have been a highly trusted eunuch, number one, for for her to send him out uh, to Mordecai, because she wanted the real answer and trusted him to give the real answer, like Sandy said. But it's also that Mordecai would have known him. This wouldn't have been the first time they had communicated through him because Mordecai trusted him enough to not just, not just give him the information and to respond to him, but to share who she really was. Um, she, they knew, her immediate attendants now knew that she was Jewish. And then what information did Mordecai make sure to share with Esther about the edict? What did he tell to Hathach? How much money had been promised and by whom? Yeah, the amount of money and that Haman was the one who was behind this. What else did he did he make sure that she knew? A copy of the edict. edict. And so it was it was this uh, Mordecai to have an actual copy is one thing for to trust to a eunuch who can then be trusted to share that information and explain it and not just say here's this piece of paper right there was uh this was important uh he would have had to have held a high position in the government to be able to have an actual copy of the edict and then what did but Mordecai did much more than inform the queen, and so what did he ask of her yeah, for her to go to the king, anything else You're good. Yeah. yeah, for he urged her to reveal her true nationality and to go to the throne and intercede for her people and and so then we'll see. So now she's been asked. And so then Esther 4, 9 through 11, tells us her response.
2: And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to the king these thirty days.
0: Definitive moments are throughout Esther, and this is one of them. Esther has received the instructions from mordecai and how did she respond wait i hear you i hear what you're telling me but you remember this right you remember these rules and just so you know he hasn't called for me for a month you know she reminds mordecai of those rules with the king and that she could be executed if she goes to him. That that was, uh, it sounds like she's making excuses. Uh, Landon Dowden, the Christ-centered expository commentary, he says her first thought was not their deaths, but her own. And so again, um Hathak has to be the messenger rather than a face-to-face conversation between Esther and Mordecai, and so she tells this to him, and he runs out the door and goes to find Mordecai. In what ways does this make the conversation more difficult to have? Yeah, it wouldn't have been quick. Would not have been quick. And what else? If you're not speaking to somebody face-to-face, what else? Yeah, yeah. you can't tell tone, tone of voice. You can't see the body language. You know, we read this, and it could be a, you know, Esther saying in fear, I can't go to the king. He'll kill me. Or it could be, remember the rules. If I'm to go, you have to pray but we don't know that because all we're doing is reading the words, right? So t- texting is a big means of communication right now. My kids have adopted this. Sometimes, like even this morning through while I'm trying to teach physics to my students, I will get a text message from my child and it's a do we have this and I look down and I'm like do, do we have this particular thing? It's not on the calendar and I will look down and I will say, you know, quick, yes, but I'm teaching and I'll put the phone away, you know, cause, cause I get the things on my watch, right? So I, I know, and then, uh, immediate response. And she wants an immediate response with this big, long, like, you know, <laughs> she, uh, tried to have a full blown conversation via text message. While she was at school and I was at school and we couldn't like immediate response was not going to happen I had to wait until I had turned on the video the, the minute and a half video that my students needed to watch and then I had 90 seconds to quickly type this huge response that she needed right and to find the email that had the information in it that she needed and and we've had a number of times where a question is asked but it takes several hours for an answer to get back. A few times where we've had misunderstandings because we aren't seeing the tone and body language in the typed letters on our phone screen. And so I wondered, I have often wondered, how this conversation could have been different or would have been different if they were allowed to be face-to-face with each other. Would she have been able to see his grief and not even, known to not even offer him the clothes? To see just the depth of his grief. Would she have been able to see his seriousness and been like, okay, I'm going to do that. Without offering a, a pause or a hesitation. What a difference it makes when we can see the faces and hear the voices of the people we communicate with. But to break down this, this verse 11 here just a little bit, when it says all the king's servants, that means all the court, all those that were in service to the king. And this concept of the golden scepter, this is the only place where we hear this specifically um, about having to, uh, to hold out the scepter to be able to approach the king, but it's in harmony with habits of the time. Um, Herodotus, again, that Greek historian, he confirms that people couldn't just approach the king, but you could send a message and request an audience. And Esther had not seen the king in 30 days. And so why might this have, if you were Esther, right, put yourself in Esther's shoes, 30 days since you've seen the king, since he has called for you, What would you be thinking? Falling out of favor. favor. There's trouble in paradise, right? God, she was clearly unsure of his desire for her. Some anxiety about her future, even without having to approach him. Because it's been 30 days. Can you imagine having to wait to be summoned by your husband? So last week, Ray and I had a week where it was just run one kid here and pick up this kid here and so art and and i was at school extra last week and so it our whole our whole week we were just passing by each other a whole lot we barely had a chance to talk about anything and finally none one night we finally got to all have dinner together as all five of us without having to um having to go to a, a meeting or pick up something that needed to go right after dinner and I told Ray that he and I just needed to go get coffee or something or just drive just to be able to talk to each other just to be able to sit and be with each other and it was a week where we still saw each other all the time and we said things to each other but we just didn't get a chance to have time with each other and I can't imagine 30 days without being summoned by by my husband And so there, uh, so then we think about here she's got this going on in her mind and the danger that she faced if she approached the king uninvited. But she was also in danger if she did nothing. And so I don't think this was an excuse on Esther's part. I really don't. I think she was pleading with Mordecai to give her some guidance. I am scared, you're my, you're my adopted father, help me, lead me, tell me what to do. Esther's view of God's ability and power was being blocked by the difficulties in her way. And we do that same thing. We see our deficiencies and our disqualifications rather than God's grace and empowerment. But stay tuned because we're going to see God's grace and empowerment in the coming weeks. So you are dismissed to your small groups. I, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the discussion.